Hello there. You're listening to the Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to talk about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. And in honor of the 60th anniversary of Lawrence of Arabia, we will be talking about one of the finest directors that we have ever had, one who specializes in historical epics. We will be talking about David Lean. to start out with some news quite a few big things have happened Deadpool 3 has been confirmed the release date has been announced September 6th 2024 and Ryan Reynolds did it in a YouTube video or I guess it was on all social media Um, and in it he was playing the bid that they didn't know what they were going to do with Deadpool 3 but they were going to pull every trick out of the bag such as bringing Hugh Jackman back for Wolverine and now it's confirmed that Hugh Jackman is going to come back and reprise his role as Wolverine in Deadpool 3. Dylan, Gore. your thoughts? It's epic. Right? Totally epic. I'm excited But for also, that. like, it's so far away from now. Two I years. Guess so. Yeah. We're going to be so much older then. That is true. That is very true. But let's not think about that. Yeah. <laughs> It'll come around. Where we'll even around. be when that happens. That's also true. But again, don't think of that. Not I like could be too dead scary. by then. Oh my god! Now we're getting morbid. Now we will be thriving when it comes around, and we'll get together and go see it in theaters, and it'll be a rollicking good time. A cute date night. Uh, and in other news, the Last of Us show on HBO just dropped a trailer, a full actual trailer, instead of just a bit in their. Uh, in their whole HBO lineup ad that they did. What did you see the trailer? I did not. You did you? You <laughs> what? You put it you included it in the news section. I know, but it's you because it. what it's if a, I hadn't seen it? Well, I assumed you would because you're the big Last of Us guy. So did you're you very see lucky it? that I did. <laughs> otherwise <laughs> we'd be talking about not seeing it. It's still an important thing to just bring up. It's out there. Y'all can check it out for yourselves. But for me personally, I, I mean, I'll probably check it out regardless of what the trailer has shown. So, yeah, what did you think since you have seen it? Yeah, it looks okay. The, the clickers it, look cool. Is it compelling you to watch it? I mean, I'm going to watch around? it regardless, yeah. Well, there you go. It's not pushing me one way or another, really, but I'm still going to watch it, of course. It's The Last of Us, and it's Pedro mm-hmm. Pascal. Like, come on. Indeed. We also have Vince Gilligan. He, of course, coming off the high of Better Call Saul's finale and figuring out what he will move on to next that's outside of the Breaking Bad universe. He has gotten a two-season order at Apple TV+. And Ray Seahorn, of course, who played Kim Wexler in Better Call Saul, she is the star of that new show, whatever it's going to be about. We don't know yet, but it's already getting a lot of backing from Apple. For good mm-hmm. reasons, since Gillian's track record is immaculate. So a two-season order with Ray Seahorn at the helm uh, of the cast. That is exciting. It's very exciting. Remember, the the last thing we heard about was that he said he's been writing so many shows about bad characters, and there's so many 
television shows about these bad people that he wants to go back and try and make a an old-fashioned hero in a TV show where he can really try and focus on that because there's so much bad out in the world right now. So maybe <laughs> Ray Seahorn will be a hero in the show. So that would be very nice. Indeed, for sure. Mm-hmm. And in other news, Jurassic World Dominion has joined the Billion Dollar Club. It is the 50th member of that club. And a huge dub for me. Indeed. It crawled its way to the billion dollar mark. Sure did. Uh, but indeed, it was able to join it. So that is good. So had yeah, the entire Jurassic World series, billion dollar films. Uh, it has pretty much mirrored the sequel trilogy to Star Wars, which is super interesting. Yeah. Where the first one popped off in 2015. Huge resurgence for the franchise. Mm-hmm. And then a pretty divisive second entry. And then the third one barely makes it past the billion. But mm-hmm. all three were able to get across a billion. So shout out to them. Okay, Indeed. now we will do the box office breakdown for September 23rd to the 25th. Don't Worry Darling came out that week. It was in first place with 19.3 million. After that was The Woman King with Viola Davis. It made 11 million. Avatar's re-release got it to double digits, 10.5 million, which was about double the Spider-Man re-release, if I remember correctly. So big, big re-release for Avatar. Barbarian, which we reviewed on our letterbox, if you want to go check that out, made 4.8 million. We also, our most previous episode was with me and John and Brett. So if you want to hear our thoughts about that, you can listen to um, that episode, Barbarian, and Don't Worry, Darling, we talked about. You're right. I need, um, to, I need to watch Don't Worry, Darling so I can listen to that episode. You do. It was a good discussion, I think. It was nice. I'm uh, and then I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah. I'm sure they'll probably be similar to ours, but yeah. I'm sure. Um, see how they run with 1.9 million. Pearl with also 1.9 million, but a slightly Bullet lower train. 1.9 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all these next ones came in real close. Bullet Train had 1.8 million. League of Super Pets, 1.7 million. Top Gun Maverick, the lowest Jesus it's been Christ. on the top 10, 1.6 million. Yeah, but it's it's been how long since it came out? It's hanging in there. It's 18 it's weeks. It's crazy. Minions Rise of Gru, 1 million. Indeed. And then we will not do the predictions for Smile and Bros because we already know what it is. Um, so yeah, next week, next episode, we will report on what those actual numbers were and talk about the implications. But yes, moving on to David Lean, the master of the epic. We'll talk about his life and his filmmaking journey. So he was born in 1908 in Croydon, England. He was home to some strict Quaker parents, so he didn't see his first film until he was 17. But apparently it was a magical experience and he decided to dedicate his life to it. Because a few years after that, he entered the industry as a tea boy. A position we wish we still had. You want to be a T-boy out there, Dylan? I want to have a T-boy. Oh, you want to have one? Yeah, I want to be a big famous director (laughs) and say, where's my T-boy? And have a guy run up and just bring me some tea. (laughs) Gotcha. So then he moved on to that, um, to basically being second AC, running the clapper, and then became an editor. And he became extremely renowned for his skills in the editing room. By the end of the 30s, 1930s, he was one of the highest paid in England. And the most sought after. And then he moved from there into the director's chair. He co-directed a patriotic war film in which we serve with playwright Noel Coward. 
1942. And then after that, they continued their collaboration. He adapted three of Coward's stage plays over the next few years. And Brief Encounter, the third of which earned Zeline his first nomination for director. And then after that, he adapted several of Charles Dickens novels, including Great Expectations in 1946 and Oliver Twist in 1948, the latter of which marked his first collaboration with Sir Alec Guinness, which we will talk about later on with all of these other films that we're going to talk about. Then he went on to make five more British films that don't even really need to be mentioned. They're sort of not unremarkable, but not necessarily mentionable. And then he started his collaboration with producer Sam Spiegel, who is going to be a continuous point throughout all of these movies. Spiegel produced The African Queen and On the On the Waterfront, so he was already a very big name. And their collaboration went on to make very, very big movies. He made they, Together they made Bridge on the River Kwai, which was this huge success. was nominated eight times, won seven of those, including Best Director and Best Picture. And then they went on to make, of course, Lawrence of Arabia soon after. Ten nominations, seven wins again, Best Director and Best Picture again. Just absolutely slaughtered. One of the biggest movies of all time. One of the highest grossing when adjusted to, to for inflation of all time. Absolutely incredible. And then after working with Sam Spiegel for so long, he moved on to MGM to work on Dr. Zhivago, which became a, a massive box office hit. Indeed. It's crazy that to this day on the... Uh, worldwide inflation adjusted charts it is ninth just ahead of the force awakens so yeah and just for inflation at is over two billion dollars which is insane Great. so a massive hit the biggest commercial hit of his career and pretty much of the time mm. would have been behind gone with the wind only at that point so yeah truly insane and then after he made that uh five years later he made ryan's daughter no relation it was about Irish set romance, but it was poorly received by the critics at that time. Their issues were with the film. Their complaints were mostly that the scale and length of the film that, of course, Lean came to be known for, his big epics, um, they seemed to overwhelm the small and simple story. So, yeah, it wasn't well received and obviously wasn't the big box office hit that Dr. Zhivago was. And then after that, being discouraged for a little bit because of the reception of his latest film. Um, and then also dealing with a lot of struggles trying to get projects off the ground. He was attached for many years to a film about uh, the mutiny on the bounty, but he wasn't able to work out some conflicts with the producer of that film. And so he ultimately had to drop out. Um, but his comeback film, 14 years after Ryan's daughter, was Passage to India which was again a return to his historical epics where he ended up being most comfortable in his filmmaking. Um, and this also turned out to be his final film. Um, and so it was well-received critically and commercially. It got 11 nominations. It only got two wins, none for lean personally, but again, a very solid return to form. Um, and he had taken the reins of many different sides of filmmaking. He wrote on his own this one, he directed it and he edited it. So calling back those skills um, from when he was first in the industry, he yeah, took on the sole role in the editing room. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth in 1984. Um, and then again, following passage, passage to India, he was still trying to make more films. He was working on an adaptation of Nostromo. 
but he passed away in 1991 at the age of 83. So he was unable to finish that work. But obviously, he left many classics behind. Um, and of course, the epics in particular are the ones that we're going to be discussing in this episode. But yeah, he was very renowned, very well respected, and he left a major impact on plenty of directors that have gone on to shape the industry since then, most notably Steven Spielberg. Of course, and we can talk a little bit about David Lean's overall themes and styles in his films. He was a very strict director, very intense to work with. Uh, I know there's a movie that Al Guinness was in, or no, not Al Guinness. Uh, uh, who? Who plays T. Lawrence? Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole, it just slipped my mind. Peter O'Toole is in a movie where he plays a director and it's about a stuntman who works his way onto the set and Peter O'Toole bases his performance off of David Lean and he's a very strict mm. character in the film. So it's it's very well known that he was very intense and strict and authoritarian in his discipline on set and that you can feel that a lot when you're watching his movies. Everything's very meticulously planned and executed to perfection almost. Uh he likes to populate the frame with intense detail and information, utilizes every bit of the screen, all the foreground, the background, just as much as he can to pack in as much detail and information as he can to really envelop you in what you're trying to watch. He really tries to open up the frame and let you see everything that you possibly can to really just create a full image of what's going on to really engross you in what's happening. Exactly. Yeah, that's part of the scope and scale that he's trying to create with all of his, all of his epics. And so, yeah, with all directors, you would hope that they would like utilize the frame to the best of their abilities and provide a lot of depth in it, like utilizing foreground and background elements. But David Lean was a master at that because, yeah, as you pointed out, he's very meticulous. Um, and so he was great at orchestrating all of that activity in all the different uh, fields of the frame. And then um, he also would often have sets built on location. So the big bridge and bridge of, on the River Kwai, of course, uh, was actually constructed. And then the village in Ryan's daughter was also completely built. I think it was over like nine months that it took for them to build that. So he cares deeply about having like actual on location um, sets, tangible things to work with. Um, and he also was known, this is part of his like autocratic style, very authoritarian style. He loved, as part of being on location, he loved delving into the characters' mindsets in their harsh environments. So like in River Kwai, in the jungle, in Lawrence of Arabia, in the desert, they would actually go to these locations and film in them. And of course, it makes it very difficult on production to be um, so far away from like a soundstage um, and having to have many, many weeks of production there and dealing with all of that. Um, but David Lean, by many counts, was extremely happy in those environments. Everyone else is having a grueling time. It's terrible. It's sweaty. It's grueling. It's yeah, all those things. But David Lean apparently was a happy camper um, during all that. So it's pretty interesting that, yeah, he really enjoyed being put in those same sort of environments as his characters. Um, and going along with that, his characters often are strong-willed, but they are pretty dogmatic and self-obsessed. 
Um, and so ultimately they are doomed by that um, same characters, like which in many ways allows them to do great things or be really successful. But yeah, it does come and bite them in the end. All right, now we're going to talk about Bridge on the River Kwai, the first movie of the three that we're going to talk about. Uh, it was written by Carl Foreman, then rewritten by Michael Wilson, both of whom were blacklisted because at the time of the, the Red Scare and all that communism stuff, a lot of writers got blacklisted for being accused of being communists. Both of these people were indeed blacklisted. Very sad. It was also produced by Sam Spiegel, who was also going to produce Lawrence of Arabia later on. Great collaboration between him and David Lean. And it starred William Holden, Alec Guinness, Jack Hawkins, and Sesue Hayakawa. Its box office was $27 million, which at the time was pretty good. Ryan, first impressions? I think it's a jolly good film. Indeed. Jolly good. Jolly jolly. Jolly good. So yeah, I think there's lots of love. So let's go ahead and dig into it. If you haven't seen it, go see it. It's a classic. Um, but yeah, we will be talking about spoilers and whatnot. Um, I think it's an interesting film. So this is the uh, shortest of the epics, but it clocked in at what, like two hours and 40 minutes? Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that there's two films contained in this one. Yeah. Like the first hour of which is dedicated to um, the whole Saito versus Colonel Nicholson and their uh, battling ideologies um, and their predicament in the prisoner of war camp. So that could have, like there's a version of the film that could have just been that, could have been that stretched out a little longer. Um, and then it's reminiscent of things like Cool Hand Luke or um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where it's just, yeah, focused entirely on that theme of like fighting back against some oppressive authority and um, some prisoner just resisting against that in some sort of way. But it's interesting that they have it flipped to where Nicholson is the one who's the one intent on following the rules that are established by the Geneva Convention, while Saito is not necessarily concerned with those, but more concerned with his own interests of getting that bridge built so he won't have to end up dying. Um, but yeah, they could have had that be its own film entirely. And then there's the other portion of the film which is mostly dedicated to uh william holden's character um commander shears him with his group of people trying to go into the jungle into burma trying to locate that bridge and then blowing it up that also yeah. could have been its own film we could have lopped off the initial like hour we could have just started with him escaping that camp and yeah. then following him I'm um, getting tasked with going back and all of that. And it also would have been a good film that stood on its own. But I do love that they married the two of them. And so we get a pretty interesting um, film that focuses a lot on um, Alec Guinness's character, Nicholson, and his dilemma um, and him dealing with, again, trying to abide by the rules and keep his soldiers soldiers, like keep them acting as British soldiers instead of what he was concerned about, which is them just becoming slaves and being demoralized. And then um, that in some way being reflected on their work on the bridge, which would then reflect on, you know, the mm -hmm. British empire. And so he wanted them to do the best that they possibly could so that they looked amazing. They looked like true soldiers. And then also with William Holden's character, him not being 
interested in the war at all. He just wants to get out of there. He's like very cynical, very unheroic. We learned that he um, had actually stolen the uh, rank of commander um, because, yeah, when his ship got shot down, he just knew that officers are treated better in prison or camps. And so he decided to do that in order to preserve himself a bit. Um, so it's an interesting uh, film that it focuses these two characters. Um, I'd say Shears is probably more of the protagonist in the traditional sense, but both of them, we certainly follow them um, and at different times are invested in what they're going through and what their next steps are. So yeah, I think it's a very, like the structure of it and the way that they play with who the protagonists are and what the main storylines are in the film. It was just super fascinating to see that play out. Yeah, absolutely. And by combining two movies into one, they make a good use of it being three hours long. There's a lot of movies where it is three hours and it just feels like one very, very long movie because they have so much action going on and two separate events going on at the same time. They can really divide their time and pace it really well, which is very exciting. Agreed. I think, yeah, this one is the one that it does the length. You don't feel as much with this one, yeah. even though it certainly is very, very long. It's still up there for sure. Yeah. yeah. But still very, very good. But what about you? What are some of the highlights of the film for you? I'm trying to think about the first time I watched it. This was definitely the first one I watched, and it's also the one I've watched the most out of the three we're going to talk about. Interesting. Yeah, it was my I first think, time. I think the reason I watched it is because there's a bit on Parks and Recreation where <laughs> it's uh, it's Ron's birthday, and Leslie for his birthday sets up like a room where he, it's just him and then like a steak that he gets to eat and then a couple movies he gets to watch and one of them is bridge on the river Kwai, and it just shows the scene where the bridge collapses and i was like wow the movie looks cool and so i found bridge on the river Kwai, and i watched it and i was like damn that movie's cool because <laughs> it's just it's just a great 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 film and also alec guinness is top tier in this movie like, oh fantastic he was one of the greatest performances nominated and won for the academy award right for his performance. Uh, I believe so, as he should, because this is just a powerhouse. Powerhouse performance. Absolutely incredible. Uh, I think it might be my favorite of the three. It's a, it's a, definitely at least a tie, because it's hard to pick between the two of this and Lawrence of Arabia. Because they're very different films, of course. But this one, I just, because the pacing is so well done, and it, it's like, because I love watching long movies. I've always loved watching very, very long movies. One of my favorite films is Once Upon a Time in America, which is four hours long. <laughs> so I like I do enjoy it because it just it's like a whole experience. But this is the one where it's like you've made a three hour movie. So I get to have that experience. But you pace it so well that it's so entertaining. It's almost like watching three hour long episodes of a TV show that you're pacing it so well that you're like binging this film, which is mm -hmm. so enjoyable to do. And I just, I think the sets are great. I think the dialogue is great. I think the way it's shot is great. Everything is just executed so masterfully in this movie that it's one of my favorites, absolutely. And for sure is going to go up on my wall when I find a place for it. Oh, wow. Adding yeah. even more and more to the wall. This and Love Lawrence of Arabia are going to go on the wall at some point, for sure. <laughs> Do you have the previous versions of the wall? So uh, I see not. how it's like changed over this year because we. I, I remember a lot. It, so I can I can tell you what the previous iterations were because I remember. Gotcha. But no, you should write that Cause, down because we, so we can the see Hitchcock. the. We did the Hitchcock episode, and so I added Rear Window and Psycho to the wall. I remember yeah. that. And then what it's else like every few episodes when you do an analysis, mm -hmm. you add something. 
You added Lord we of the Rings too. When we watched everything ever all at once, that got added to the wall. Lord of the Rings is going to get added to the wall, yes. Uh, we did the Aaron Sorkin episode and Moneyball and uh, <laughs> Steve Jobs got added to the wall. Dang. So yeah, a lot getting added. Oh, and time. and Social Network got added to the wall. <laughs> and then, yeah, I think that's, that's about it, yeah. Everything else was pretty much there before. But yeah, Can't everything get, just gets added slowly as I rewatch films that I've seen before and remember how much I loved them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this was definitely like, Bridge on the Requires definitely like one of the movies, because I watched when I was like 14 or 15 or something. It was definitely one of the movies that impacted me the most in terms of like what you can do with true scale. When you really take something and blow it way out of proportion on a big budget, what a really, really big epic can truly look like. Because you see movies today that are supposed to be epics and you're like yeah they feel epic but the scale doesn't feel like it matches that epic level like avatar does it lord of the rings does it but it's been a long time since we've felt true epic scale in a theater and bridge on the river choir i feel like is a good example of how you can do that right so is lawrence of arabia but bridge on the river choir was the first i watched and i was like this is just awesome incredible Mm -hmm. agreed yeah um what you had pointed out there about the dialogue being great, I agree. Like it's excellent dialogue, and it's one of those films, uh, a few of the Hitchcock ones for sure as well, where I feel like you could show this to a modern audience and they'll still Absolutely. be entirely invested. Like there's no real sense of like, oh, you have to be like, oh, it it was a product of its time, so this, this, and that. Like this one, it's still so sharp, so witty, so interesting and intelligent. So yeah. It, yeah. On that front, I was really, really impressed because yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's incredible. Um, and then again, like the exploration of the themes, the way that they were able to position some of these characters and put them at odds, like Saito and Nicholson already touched on that. Um, but again, Cheers, like being that unheroic character who again is sort of like our protagonist. Obviously, mm-hmm. he was, I think, put in there because this was adapted from a book and I, there wasn't an American character in that book. So Obviously, it was created for the American audiences since they knew this was going to play to, you know, North America. So mm-hmm. he added them in, and instead of making them more of a, a really idealistic character, um, we can get behind and who's heroic and doing all these amazing actions. He's, like, mm-hmm. constantly running away from the battle. I love he's, the scene he's where he's... The, he's the anti-John Wayne. Exactly. The, the scene where he's trying to wiggle out of getting sent back. Yeah. And he's... <laughs> like he first was still trying to keep up the ruse of the commander thing. And then he was like, Oh no, no, I lied. So I should be dishonorably discharged for doing that. And then the guy he's talking to reveals like, Oh, we knew all that already, but yeah, yeah we're sending you anyway. Jack <laughs> Hawkins keeps, is really funny in this movie for sure. And then he keeps trying to like the parachute bit where they're like, Oh, we're going to have to parachute down. Cheers. Do you, you know how to do that? And he's like, no, I guess you got to just go without me. Then and they're like, Oh, we'll teach you. We'll get you up to speed. <laughs> it was so funny um and then even when he's when they're on the mission and things are going wrong like the radio's broken they don't know where they're going um and so he's like pointing out all this stuff of like i'm useless here why am i still here like why can't i just turn around and go home um yeah so he's like forced to be strong along with this so it's very interesting again how they're able to um create those those mindsets those beliefs in each of these characters um, and watching them play out because there's a few different ones um and again they're all opposing and so seeing them interact constantly 
was super interesting. And again, I love the Nicholson, uh, like his arc as well, because he's he wants to show that the British Army is like great, that they have this incredible work ethic. And so when they make the bridge, even as prisoners for the enemy, they're going to make the best bridge possible. Mm-hmm. And then he starts getting obsessed with that idea. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes time for the like his allies to come in and bro, blow up that bridge. Now he has this personal investment and attachment with that bridge and what it represents. And he's actively working against the people that are on his side in the war and who are trying to destroy this bridge that is an important um, like tactical piece for the enemy. And he ends up fighting against his allies. Yeah. I love by the end of it, Alec Guinness is like walking along the bridge and all the the soldiers, like the Japanese soldiers are standing at attention, like at guard on the bridge, guarding it. And he's walking along the bridge like he is a commander. Like he's because like the whole idea is that he wants his men to feel like soldiers. And in doing so, he's made himself feel like a commander again, like he's actually in charge of something and that he's not a prisoner. Mm -hmm. And so he feels such like ownership over this property because he's he's had those feelings so strongly my favorite scene probably is the one where him and all the they come up with the plans for the bridge and they're just pitching it to saito and his men and and saito just looks so upset the whole time and he's just like yeah i guess we can do that <laughs> that was a good scene he's yeah. Just like yeah i guess you're right man i guess we were just wrong this whole time but yeah he's yeah man up, like I guess, all the yeah all the engineers and they're talking about, oh, this would be make for a stronger bridge or oh, we need to do this material or oh, we need to do it at this location. And Saito, yeah, every time it's just like, yes, that sounds great. We'll go ahead and do that. Yeah. And <laughs> Alginus is like, Alginus is like, we're going to have to increase the workforce of the men in order to make up for the time that we've lost over a certain dispute that could have been avoided. <laughs> Not to our fault. And Saito is like, yes, I understand. <laughs> it's so yeah. good. Really twisting the knife. It's a in great, there. great scene. It is. Again, there's a lot of great things like that scattered throughout here. Um, but yeah, that whole like idea of oh, these people should have been on the same side. You would assume Nicholson would at a certain point be like, oh yeah, we'll end up destroying the bridge. Um, but yeah, he's actively working against them as they try to pull off the detonation. And that whole scene was super tense as well. Because you know, like you completely understand where he's coming from at that point. Like his attachment to this bridge when he was like earlier longingly looking out over the sunrise, leaning on the side of the bridge. Um, and then now he spots that wire leading to, um, I think, the Joyce character, yeah, who's hiding away somewhere, getting ready to detonate it uh, when the train is coming up. And it's such a tense scene. Like, again, it's one of those that, um, like older films, sometimes mm-hmm. when I get to the action part, I go to rear window. Again, that yeah. confrontation, it's just a little goofy. Um, yeah. Oh this yeah, one. that's like that's the thing. I, like, if I was gonna show a modern audience an old movie that I think that they would love, Rear Window would be it. Except for the, the bit where yeah. he's flashing the camera around. That's the only thing they'd be like, "Wow, that was stupid." It's so like, dated, You're right. yeah, and it just undercuts like all the tension and everything. Um, it happens like three times for so long. Yeah, it's rough. But this one, this is one that again the finale perfectly works. Like nothing about it is dated. Like it is so tense. You're mm-hmm. so caught up in. But what's going to happen? Is he actually going to catch it? Is he going to go through with like killing Joyce or taking down Joyce in order to save this bridge? Um, it's just a very fascinating conflict that they bring up for um, that Nicholson character and then watching it play out. 
super interesting. And then, of course, there's the understanding that you know there's going to be a real bridge that's getting detonated here. For me, I had also seen the like that portion where it gets blown up because mm-hmm. they had showed it in film school. Um, I forget what the reason was. I think it was they were just like, look at how cool this is. Look at that real set, real like bridge getting blown up in like an editing class. I don't think it was right. I feel like it was Beckler, but um, no. Yeah, because I'm thinking of what context it would have been in, but yeah, I know I definitely did see it from that. Um, and then to sort of like, yeah, curious that reputation. If you know anything about River Kwai, you know that, oh, they blow up the bridge for real. So yeah, um, yeah you have that expectation coming up too. So you know it's going to happen, but how exactly does it play out? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, of course, it being Nicholson, who after Joyce is dead, the Japanese are running down, Shears is running across the river to try and stop Nicholson and detonate it possibly. Mm-hmm. That is a question we'll get back to in a second of what exactly his motivations are at the very end there. But we do see Nicholson realizing um, and not like this huge monologue or anything like that, but all we just see is Alec Innes's face and then him going, what have I done? What have I done? And then he, he collapses from the mortar, I guess, that had injured him and mm-hmm. falls on the plunger. It's a great shot. And detonates it. And so it wasn't even at least entirely intentional. Maybe there could be a reading of it where I think he was, was like, trying well, to get I'm, there to do if it. If I'm dying, then I'll fall onto it and try and do it. But even so, it was reluctant for most of um, the that scene and then could have been like just a accident. The way he falls over and collapses and dies happens to be on the plunger. So it wasn't even like an intentional thing. Um, I think to me, it's like he was going to detonate it but then it's a coincidence that he he literally passed out and probably died on the way there and then lands on it fortunately like it's a fortunate coincidence that he lands mm-hmm. on it i think his intention was to blow it up but also like after seeing him love this bridge for so long it would be weird to see him pull the plunge on it to blow it up so i think him just landing on it is even better plus it's a great, great shot it just looks great him landing on <laughs> it and then immediately cutting to explode for sure but yeah um the so yeah, the Shears thing of Shears swimming over, he was like yelling at Joyce to detonate it. He was yelling at him to like kill Nicholson or something. And then he starts swimming over with a knife to, again, we assume kill Nicholson and then detonate it. That was the one thing that was taking me out of it a little bit, just because, again, his motivation and his characterization throughout the whole rest of the film is him being this very unheroic, cynical type character. And that carries again throughout for most of the time that he's back in the jungle and pursuing the bridge. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering what was the reason behind making him like go and do that and again die well, as in he's the effort in the of jungle, trying to stop him. As he's in the jungle, he's becoming more and more of a hero. Because at the end of the day, he's like an anti hero, you know. He is the reluctant hero. But even mm-hmm. the reluctant hero is still the hero. Like as he's they're going through the jungle, he is pulling more and more for uh What's Jack Hawkins' character's name? I forget. But okay. he's as pulling a counterpoint to that, though, when yeah. did, because he has that whole debate because um, Jack Hawkins' character is talking about, like, oh, we'll do this plan. And even if we die, like, basically, they're like, oh, it could be a suicide mission, but we'll do it because it needs to be done. And then he uh, does have that argument. Starts, yeah, he starts chewing him out, being like, you and Nicholson, you both are crazy. The exact line was, oh, you're crazy with courage for what? how to die like a gentleman, how to die by the rules. And the only important thing is living like a human being. 
Like that yeah. was his whole thing. Because when we see when he had escaped, he's at, um, I forget where exactly it is, but I guess some base. And then he's chilling with um, a lady and he's having a good time. And he's like, nice, this is living. This is what I'm doing. Um, and then as they're going through the jungle and they're again talking about these like plans and doing these things to die these heroic deaths um, to get all the honor that they would get for sacrificing themselves in that way. He's like, you guys are crazy for this. Like that is not worth sacrificing yourself in these ways. All that's important is just living is going about. I think it's more like a, a frustration thing maybe. Cause like he becomes friends with the kid as they go along through the jungle and the kid's entire mission is the same as Jack Hawkins is like, you're here to do the mission, which is to blow up the bridge. Like barring all costs you must blow up the bridge and he gets there and they get they do all this work they go all this way he he's put in all this danger to get all the way there and they do all the work to set up all the bombs and they get all the way there and they're about to blow it up and because of colonel nicholson's like incompetence and his steadfast desire to save the bridge costs them the mission and costs the kid his life like that frustration of like we can't we came this far to blow up this bridge this kid risk his entire life to blow up this bridge and now he's dead and the bridge is still there because of you colonel nicholson that is beyond frustrating this bridge at all costs needs to be blown up for the sheer frustration of it all interesting yeah i don't know i i didn't at least for me i didn't pick up on the connection between shears and joyce being that strong that he would be so upset over him dying that he would have to rush out Again, this is I think it's like more again like a frustration towards Nicholson. That I would buy Just the, more the, the principle of it rather than like I'm mad that the kid died. It's more like I'm mad that the kid died because he had this belief that the bridge needs to blow up and the bridge is still there. Like, Interesting, but again, like, I don't know if that he principle would of like like risk if the mission life. really. Well, it's an in the moment kind of thing. I mean, the last line is madness, madness. Like they're all well, going yeah, crazy. I was about to point that as well. Of like, is that part of the point that? Like they the all just war. go crazy in this jungle and it's all just pointless. Like it's just yeah. a bridge. I agree. But yeah, like, yeah, it all leads them to stupid, avoidable deaths and they all get like, again, mm-hmm. someone who would have you expected would have stayed on the sidelines yeah. and not get involved. Oh, he gets involved because it's the heat of the moment and they're being driven mad and all this. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think it's more successful as a final line and as the chaoticism of it is if the bridge, not only the bridge blows up, but everybody dies. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, it works for the thing. I was just that's the one aspect to it of like Shears rushing out and doing yeah. that. It um, is unfortunate that it requires mental gymnastics to make it work, but yeah, it I definitely just, could have been more clear of a, a journey for his character. But I think at that point they were just so focused on in ramping up the tension and building up that scene as intense as it could be. To we need to blow up this bridge. I think it's like we're trying to get the audience to want to blow up the bridge too, even though at the end of the day it's pointless. It's just right. a bridge. Yeah, agreed. And I do like the the madness line at the end. Madness. Madness. The spiritual predecessor to Colonel Kurtz, the whore in Apocalypse Now. It's so pretty yeah. cool. I do yeah. love the ending for both that of, yeah, the anti-war message of it's all pointless and stupid and everyone died and they got turned into the worst possible version of human beings. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't worth it. So... Yeah, good stuff there. Um, any other final thoughts? It's just a great, great movie. Great epic. Agreed. Everybody I wanna, should watch it. Amazing. I want to shout out in particular the 
the scene where Joyce is like they're all chasing down that one Japanese soldier that they weren't able to kill after they were like bathing um, mm-hmm. in that one uh, pool body of water. The shadow of the birds, like it's just this huge flock of birds that raise up because of the gunshots. And then for the rest of that scene, we see on the ground just the shadows of those birds moving over. Mm-hmm. And I think that is such an incredible scene. It's just so yeah. beautiful the way that they were able to pull that off. And then also, yeah, just the entire tension of Joyce trying to get to that one um, enemy soldier. And then, of course, we had raised the question of is Joyce capable of murder? Will he be able to do it? Um, and then, of course, he freezes at that moment. And then mm-hmm. I forget who if it was Shears or if it was um, Hawkins, his character that came through and had to kill the um, Japanese soldier. It was Hawkins because Hawkins gets shot in the foot. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, that whole sequence was just breathtaking. So beautiful. And again, yeah, like the scale that he's able to pull off, like all the accent dialogue, all the themes that are being explored in here. But just on a pure visual level, like the cinematography of each of these films, it's really incredible. And for its time as well, like they're so beautiful. So, yeah, I agree. Fantastic stuff. So how many whistling POWs out of five would you give this movie? I I am going to give it a 4.5 for now. I think on rewatch it may increase, but again, the Shears thing is one thing that's holding it back. Then also, I don't know if I was emotionally invested in any of the characters. On the intellectual uh, side of things, like I was connecting with all of them, like again, all the ideas they're presenting, all the beliefs they had and the way they were articulating them, I think that was all extremely well done. But on the emotional front, I don't know how concerned I was about like the actual well-being of any of the characters um so yeah i feel like that's the one part holding it back but it's an excellent movie and i'm sure at some point on a rewatch maybe on the big screen it'll be a five out of five at some point and then how about you i assume a five a full five it is indeed a full five i mean this movie's just Mm -hmm. awesome the more you watch it the better it gets i guarantee the only thing that hangs me up is they have this epic thing at the end and it's this big shot of like the the train like the bridge exploding the train collapsing it's all done for real it's huge it's epic but then there are bits earlier in the movie where they do things that don't necessarily that aren't necessarily that epic but then they cheat the way through it like an old movie would do and i'm like why would you why would you cheat that way when you have this you're already going all out for the bridge like they do the bit where shears falls off the cliff and it's very clearly a dummy <laughs> like yeah. it's like it's very clearly just like a rag doll and then they do the bit where they parachute out the plane and it's very clearly just like a little army man on like a plastic parachute falling down and i'm like what why would you you could have just actually parachuted guys down there or you could have just filmed it differently like why would you do it something where i can very clearly see it's a toy and then you get to this end that that's like most directors probably would have just done it on a miniature at the time and you actually built a giant bridge and blew it up with a real train on it to be authentic like why would you why would you do this to me (laughs) 
they spent all their budget on that so they're like yeah, it just certainly just those two moments certainly just took me out of it and i was like i had to like rewind and be like that's just a that is just a little toy soldier <laughs> on a little fake parachute that they're shooting at a specific angle to make it look bigger man just looked bad indeed but everything else is flawless fantastic loved it cool all right now we will talk about lawrence of arabia getting him out in 1962 and i'm waiting to see when they're gonna bring it back in theaters for the 60th awesome. anniversary because i was hoping they were gonna be able to do that so that we could watch it and prep for the show but it hasn't happened yet and i haven't seen it anywhere yet so hopefully they'll bring that back because that'd be a shame if they didn't for the 60th so anniversary cool. i mean come on um but yeah so lean of course partnering with spiegel again on this one it was written by robert bolt Michael Wilson did the original treatment, but then it got rewritten, rewritten by Robert Bolt, who comes from the uh, stage side of things. He's a playwright. Um, of course, starring Peter O'Toole, Omar Sharif, Alec Guinness yet again, Anthony Quinn, and then Freddie Young as the cinematographer. It made $45 million in the box office, which again, for the time, is quite good. Um, so for the initial impressions, what are your thoughts, Dylan? sexy <laughs> i i seen this movie once before i remember i had split it up and i watched the first half and then i stopped and then i watched the second half a while later so this is probably my first time watching it oh you know what <laughs> i realized when i watched it this time i watched the first hour then got tired went to bed and the next day watched the rest of it so <laughs> i guess i've never watched the whole thing start to finish it's pretty long guys it's, it's it's three what, hours, three hours and forty and, minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a pretty long movie, and the intermission doesn't come in until like two and a half hours in. That's true. There's like there's like it's like two thirds of the movie, and then an intermission. I just I do think it is very long. I do really like very long movies. I as far as long movies go, it is not the most well paced. It definitely feels like its length for sure, but I think that's the point. I think that's intentional, and I think the idea is to make it feel like a very long journey that T. Lawrence is going through, and by making it feel long, you're understanding you're you're like because they don't do any time jumps, like very specifically until the uh, intermission. But because it's so long, you can feel the time lapse as it's going on. You're right. There I would agree are, with that. A hundred percent. The yeah. there's many many scenes of them going through the desert, just traveling through it, mm -hmm. and a hundred percent they could have just either cut to the next location or done a brief like five second shot of them moving through the desert and then cut to the next location. But we focus a lot on those traveling scenes because yeah, they wanted us to align with the character and feel the same sense of the journey that uh they're going through so it's definitely intentional in that regard i think yeah and it, when you it watch successful for sure yeah when you watch like lord of the rings which is also a movie about a very long journey like i think the books is like a two or four year journey just to get to mordor something like that like very very long when you watch the movie it's like they're doing it in like days or like weeks or months and it feels a lot shorter because they're pacing it up to make it more exciting for the audience exactly. you watch lawrence of arabia and you see them traveling to akaba across that long desert they're doing that for like 20 minutes and you're like man this is taking them weeks to get across this desert 
They're taking a long time to get there. Then they have to stop at this watering hole where they meet uh, Anthony Quinn. And then from that watering hole, they have to travel more distance to get to Akaba. It's like a very, very lengthy thing. But that works. That's like the point. It works. So my impression is it feels long. It is long. (laughs) And it is epic. Yes, agreed. My initial impression is just masterpiece. I think this is incredible. This is my first time truly seeing it really the whole way through. And I did do start to finish. Um, and man, it is long. It is so long. Yeah. The Also, I don't know why it opens on like eight minutes of just a black screen with the <laughs> music going over and like the overture. I was yeah, like, did you really very have to odd do that? choice? Because you watch Dr. Zhivago <laughs> and they do an overture too, but at least there's a screen to it where it says the word overture. And so you know it's going on. If you don't know what's happening, like if you were in a theater, you'd be like, man, they must have broke the projector or something. I can hear the music. There's no screen. There's actually, when I, because I had to rent it on YouTube, there's a little opening clip that says David Lean's original intention was for the first eight minutes of the overture to be with a black screen and the audience sitting in it. Just to like let you know that nothing's wrong with the clip. Like they gave a warning, which is fair, funny. you know? Yeah, it is. It's very odd introduction but i mean if that's what he wanted that that's his way to do it i would have included some kind of visual to go with it but i, I guess agree. he just wanted to fill the auditorium with with just sounds i guess yeah i don't know it is a curious choice i would have loved to know why he decided to do that but yeah it is Alas, very dead. lengthy and he is <laughs> r.i.p uh it is very lengthy it definitely feels its length as you said but i think a lot of it is intentional and i think a lot of those travel scenes do work because they're beautiful like on the visual side of things but then they are also rooting us in that same mindset as the characters the same sense of like a long ruling taxing journey Mm -hmm. um so i think it does ultimately work um but yeah you gotta have endurance to get through the whole film in one go for sure um and a lot of people i think yeah might get lost in a lot of those travel scenes may see them as unnecessary, but for me, they worked just because they were so beautiful. Um, and overall, I was not expecting a film of this much depth in terms of the character of T.E. Lawrence. I mean, mm-hmm. his name is in the title, so you know it's like it's supposed to be about this protagonist, but I didn't expect it to go that in-depth like to laser in on his character and getting such a like strong portrait of who he is and then also still leaving us with a lot of questions about who he is because he was a very complicated character um but yeah when you think of like the epic scale and like knowing just of the plot of like them maneuvering Mm -hmm. in arabia and dealing with like world war one stuff um i just didn't expect it to be such a well done like character study of lawrence so In what way yeah. is this your first time watching it? Like, because it's one you, of those films you, where, like, it has been on, and I've been in the room, and I have seen images of it, but in no mm-hmm. way was it an intentional viewing because I was too young at that point. Okay. So, this so is the you've first never time actually where... seen the whole thing. Correct. Okay. Not in any meaningful sense. Like, I'm no, because I don't think I was there for like the full time that it was playing. Um, so yeah. And then even if I was, though, I would have forgotten so much. Okay. Because, um, yeah, I don't really remember 
So like at some point in your house, anyway. your family was watching Lawrence of Arabia and you like walked in for a bit. Yeah. Okay. But that makes sense. Yeah, this was my first true, true time, like being dedicated full, to watching it and also being like a mature human being. Like that a full big brain adult. Yeah. Um so yeah, it was a great experience in that sense. Um and yeah, of course, just the epic scale. Can't talk about it enough, but the cinematography in this movie, it is immaculate, breathtaking, stunning. It's just so good. And again, yeah. for its time, it's still unbelievable. So many of the shots could be framed on a wall and they'd be an amazing art piece. Because it's just so beautiful, so fantastic. And then again, pair that with the character study that you have a lot of great writing, still a lot of great dialogue. We'll talk about some of that in particular mm -hmm. scenes. Um, but yeah, there's just so much going on in this film, which is good that it, again, it doesn't have just emptiness for its length. There is a lot that's going on there. Um, and again, I think that length also helps you continuously engage with the film and try and think about it as you're watching it, unravel what's going on with the character, um, what's going on with the themes at large. I think all of that just works for, yeah, like it's, it's length, all the scope that it's um, reaching for. I think it absolutely is able to reach it. Um, so yeah, when we talk about Lawrence and his character, we open up, interestingly enough, on his death, like him having an accident and then dying. And then we see at his funeral, a bunch of people are talking about him and there's these different perceptions of him. Which again is touching on that idea of like, okay, who is Lawrence? Who is this guy? Well, now we're going to watch a movie that gives us his story. So by the end of it, we should know who he is and know a lot more about this guy. Mm -hmm. um, and then so we start out with him in Egypt making maps. We see early bits of his characterization, which I think are extremely well done. The whole bit of him doing the match, like just holding it um, mm -hmm. as it's burning. And then it's obviously going to be burning him, but... He's not affected by it. And he tells that guy who's like, how are you able to do that? It's like, it's just mind over matter, basically. The trick is mm -hmm. to not mind that it burns. Yeah. Um, so we see that. I like, the, I like the scene he has where he's talking to the, I guess, general of the British Army in the area. And he's like being interviewed by him. And it's just very clear from the interaction that he's not like another cog in the British Empire. He's very much his own person. And he acts as his own person. Like he doesn't even salute the guy when he walks in. Mm -hmm. He's very much, you know his individual self over being a British soldier. And so that really does create a unique situation for him when he is introduced into this new place. He can go in as Lawrence instead of uh, private Lawrence of the British army. Exactly. You know, he yeah. Really goes in as himself. And that's another thing. Yeah. He's bursting with personality, especially mm -hmm. in those first few minutes, um, which is great to see because yeah, other um, protagonists typically might be more, um, just played with a little bit more, not like reserve where they're an introverted character, but just more stone faced, more stoic. Whereas this one is not that at all. Like certainly um, a big personality um, with no reservations about displaying that. And so for that sense, you initially, at least for me, like get connected with that character. Um, and then as well, like you just pointed out, he's not that cog in the machine. He is able to be his own individual self. And so um, you get attached to him and get uh, warmed up to him for that reason as well. 
And then we see when he goes into the desert, which he also thinks he's like, oh, it'll be a fun time. It'll be a nice adventure. Um, we see as he's walking with that guide, he's avoiding taking drinks and food whenever the guide doesn't do that. So he's like also trying to um, like fully immerse himself, I guess, in being the among the Bedouins, which I think is yeah what they call the guides um, in that region. But Mm-hmm. you would expect like other people would be like oh i'm never been in the desert before like this so they're hungering for food or they're seeing for any sip of water that they can but no he's intentionally trying to stay on the level of that guide get acclimated to this world and he's like no if you're not taking a drink then i won't mm-hmm. like i'll do it when you actually do it um because i can hold out like i can be disciplined mind over matter i'll be able to wait until you need to do it so again, all that characterization gives us so much about who he is and his personality and his traits. Um, so, so well done. So early on too. Um, and then we get the Mirage at the Well. Oof. Which again, when talking about the cinematography, and like this is one of the most cinematic moments ever. And that's why I need to see this on the big screen. Because it would just be breathtaking. Because even on my little old tv it was fantastic beautiful dude i learned i I did so much research on this shot first the little trail that winds through the desert towards where they are that's supposed to be like the pathway that uh the camels take uh it was just added there by the set decorators just spray paint like they just spray painted (laughs) the sand and then freddie young but freddie young Uh, is a cinematographer didn't like it so he started kicking it away into the sand (laughs) <laughs> he just didn't like it so much. And then they settled on leaving it, and Freddie Young was pissed. And then to really? get That's the crazy. shot. But did yeah, the, when he, he was kicking like it. it around, did that maybe mask it a little better? Because it didn't look like spray paint. So maybe him kicking well, it around, I mean, like putting I mean, dirt over it. He didn't it. kick the whole thing. It's a pretty long trail. Well, he yeah, just like started imagine. kicking at it to get With rid of it. And then they were like, Freddie, stop. <laughs> and then when to do the shot, they used a 200 millimeter lens, I believe. Something close to or maybe like a 400 millimeter lens very very long lens and so i was doing research about that i'm like damn i've never i've never heard of a lens that long and in doing that research i found out there was a shot in uh tinker taylor soldier spy which is a movie i haven't seen all the way through i only watched like the first 20 minutes and i got kind of bored and (laughs) there's a shot in it apparently with a 2000 millimeter lens and i was (laughs) like what does this look like and i looked it up and it is a shot of gary oldman talking to another actor and they're on like a tarmac and a plane is landing behind them. And because the lens is so long, the plane gets blown up in the background. And it, it, it stays the same size as it's approaching the entire time. So it's driving forward. And it is, like, it is probably like a good quarter mile away. But it looks like it's right behind them. And it stays that size as it's approaching the entire way. It just goes from looking like a, a projected image in the background to looking like an actual plane. Like it's just the weirdest thing you'll ever see and it's a very very cool shot but i i can't for the life of me like because it was out of context in the movie i'm watching I'm like i can't for the life of me imagine what it would be like to watch this movie and have this shot just come out of nowhere because it just <laughs> looks bizarre it looks absolutely right. bizarre it makes Honestly. me want i'm gonna go watch the movie it's a crazy crazy shot and then you look up what the 2000 millimeter lens looks like it's huge yeah i'd, I'd bet i'll have ridiculous. to check out that shot because it does sound cool it's like crazy. Imagining it. i'll send it to you i'll send it to you but yeah, the Mirage at the Well, so well done. Gorgeous. Just the like black splotch shimmering in the mm-hmm. far distance. 
and you have the guide and Peter O'Toole mm -hmm. on either side of it. And that yeah. like little spray paint thing, like the camel trail mm -hmm. as a leading line leading up to that, um, yeah. to I think in the distance. It's so good. Yeah. So it's crazy that the cinematographer was like, oh, that's not going to work. It's like he one just didn't of think the it looked best right. shots. He just didn't think it looked natural. And so he was like, we got to get rid of it. And they were like, Freddie, chill. I guess, yeah, because when you know it's the spray paint, you're thinking of it as that. But yeah, for all the people in the audience, yeah, to me, it just seemed like, oh, it's it's like the little road or little trail that because mm -hmm. people are coming up and down it. So, but yeah, it, it looks reminded so good. me the shot's so good because you have almost a static shot of like you have Lawrence on the left and then the guide on the right. And then you have that trail leading to the distance and you have that static shot. And then as Lawrence starts to move over towards the guide very slowly the camera's moving with him very slowly it reminds me like just like the very steady pace at which he's moving and at which the camera's moving very slightly to toward this epic object it reminds me of the shot in uh uh what's it called uh it's on my wall god damn it <laughs> the good the bad and the ugly it reminds me of the good and the bad and the ugly when they do that really wide shot of them at the standoff and they're slowly moving mm -hmm. apart from each other to their positions it reminds me of that another mm -hmm. like just that is the shot that's on my wall too. The the, the best shot in that movie. Incredible. Yeah, is this going to be your shot for yes, Lawrence of Arabia that goes on the wall? Yeah, it's, it's the same be. thing. Just that so slow. It's the slow movement that Lawrence does that sells it for me. Like that very slow. Like this has to be something epic because he's so cautious about what he's doing that he doesn't know what's approaching him. That has to be something that changes the game for the rest of the movie, and it is. It's because it's Ali. Absolutely. And, and so just that slow movement creates such tension, even though there's no sounds except for the sound of the sand crunching. There's no other movement in the scene. It's just Lawrence moving very slowly. And it's the same thing in Good and the Bad. Like there's no movement except for them very slowly separating to their positions and then the music going like crazy. <laughs> right. It's a great shot. Yeah, definitely on the Mount Rushmore shots for me, at least. It's so good. So incredible. For sure. And the way they pulled it off. Oh, fantastic. Um, but then we also get great characterization after that because when Trufelli shows up, he kills the guide who initially pulled out the gun that Lawrence had given him. So that's mm. a bitter sort of irony there. Um, but then we see Lawrence chew out Sheriff Ali. And then you also think initially that I go, they're going to just be very tense. They're going to fight. Somebody's going to go down. But they just sort of talk really like there's no threat on Lawrence's life. Um, yeah. And then he feels so comfortable being like you suck you're awful you're a murderer um and then he chews out like the arab people as a whole saying like oh um you and the rest of them will always be like silly and barbarous or cruel people if you continue to let these um like little tribal disputes that end in like needless murder as long the as person the always fight tribe for tribe they will always be a little people you gonna keep going go for it finish it a, is, is there oh, more okay. I think well, that's, a, that's the I mean, quote that, that I remember. And then he goes, he, he directly looks at him and calls them little people for, for what they do. And I think indeed. it's a great line. And then the rest of it is he's like, oh, you always be silly, barbarous and cruel. You always be silly, barbarous and cruel. Yeah. So he does that. And so we see a hardline stance. He does not like murder. And mm -hmm. he does not take fondly to the, again, the like tribal disputes, the fractured um, Arab tribes. He thinks they should work as one people, the Arab people, so that they aren't able to be easily swept up by the British army when they come through. Um, and again, since we know that Lawrence isn't as fond of like that British machine, 
he would prefer that yeah the Arabs are able to stand as their own people instead of just becoming another cog in the great imperial machine of the British. Mm-hmm. So again, we get all that stuff in one little scene. It's beautiful. And then later we get more stuff of like the mind over matter thing. Um, the question of it is written versus nothing is written. Lawrence is basically saying like, yeah, your fate is something that you were able to decide. You were the one that writes it. It is not written for you. Um, and so he believes that with the sheer force of will, he can go back and rescue Kasim, the person that was left behind in the desert, mm-hmm. um, like the very brutal desert stretch mm-hmm. that is between where they were and Aqaba. Um, and they're like, bro, we barely made it through. There's no way you're going to be able to go back, get him, and then come back and be alive. And of course, he's like, nothing is written. So then he goes and does it, brings Kasim back. It's great. It's incredible. They all it's now epic. accept him as one of their own. They gift him the white robes that he dons throughout most of the rest of the picture. Um, and it's just so good because, yeah, you get that yeah. triumphant feeling of, like, yeah, nothing is written. Yeah, you are mm-hmm. able to take things into your own hands. Um, and then, of course, that also is him finally being accepted into that tribe. Sharif Ali finally also is like, okay, there's something to this guy. Um, so they, uh, yeah, they become partners more because of that. Um, and then the next scene that I love so much is the where they're in the tent and they're talking with um, Alda, one of those other tribes. Um, Thoughts on real quick, because sure. between the Aqaba, where they're going to Aqaba bit and the well bit is when we get to the great traveling city with that's led by Prince Faisal and it's getting attacked by all the planes. First off, epic. Like, right. Oh, yeah. yeah a, incredible introduction. Like all those <laughs> planes coming down, all the people running around this giant tent city, which I'm pretty sure they re- reuse the same setup for a lot of different uh, scenes. Like Alida's camp is probably the same camp because I'm looking at them like if you build it up, just shoot it from different angles and it'll be a different camp. Like right. it's a great idea and it works. Nobody would get it unless they really knew or really thought about it. And so, like, just also the planes, including those biplanes coming in and just terrorizing them. Just, just yeah, epic. It's the most epic scene. And I think it's one of the most epic scenes in the movie. I think it's just intense to watch and crazy because it's, it's all real. All these people running around, all the extras, all the bombs blowing up, the planes flying around. It's all just real. And mm-hmm. because it's so real, it feels real and it feels awesome. But Indeed. thoughts on Prince Faisal and Auda being Alec Guinness and Anthony Quinn, respectively, doing brown face. <laughs> I mean, obviously, not good. I don't know why. Because they have Omar Sharif mm-hmm. as Sheriff Ali. And he also um, had just done Bridge on the River Kwai with several Japanese actors. That's true. So, yeah, I don't know why it was the case that, like, I respect wanting to work with Alec Guinness again. Great actor. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't know why exactly they weren't able to do that um, to get yeah just actual middle eastern actors to come in and play it um it is obviously a different time mm-hmm. so again, i thought it was, was more maybe there weren't a lot of because like my thought was like maybe there weren't a lot of prominent middle eastern actors at the time but then you do have omar sharif who is incredible in the movie who is middle eastern. and you also have a lot of other smaller bits for actual middle eastern actors who also do great like the two kids and gassam like, they definitely exist. It's just very odd that they went with... I mean, maybe they just want to attach big names to try and get people to go in. And, of course, Brownface was a big yeah. problem at the time. It's just I very agree, jarring yeah. to see. And it, what's even worse is that, like, they're not even, like, terrible performances. It's just 
it's just not right. <laughs> I mean, Anthony hey. Quinn is a little much for sure, but but I think Alec Guinness, like he's not bad in the movie. It's just very odd. Yeah, I thought they were both fine performances, but yeah, it did also think, seem odd that again, I don't know why they weren't able to do it. Do you think in David Lean makes, would have been better? Do you think David um, Lean makes up for it? By letting Omar Sharif do whiteface and Dr. Shivago. I thought, well, that was the same thing I had. I was like, at least he's like, guys, I go both ways. I will cast <laughs> Omar Sharif as this random Russian guy when he clearly is not Russian. Because I, I read, I read what Omar Sharif had to do. And he had to constantly tape his eyes to widen them to be like like that, a which I was like, eyes. that's crazy. He had to, like, he had to straighten his hair. <laughs> he had to whiten his skin. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Like, he did go full white face which i don't have a problem with because he was great in that movie and we'll get there but i was like i guess i guess like it's really about casting an actor in a role as opposed th- to that's that's what uh, yeah i think david lean was like is he's like ultimately because yeah he's like outcast a middle eastern in lawrence mm-hmm. of arabia omar sharif so he also, likes his, omar sharif is very charming he is for sure so he's like oh i like him so i'll cast him in this film um, but then he's like oh well i like Alec Guinness, so i'll just find a role for him doesn't matter whether it's on the british side or um, on the Arabic side. And then I guess same thing for Anthony Quinn. Um, who's also, he's like Mexican, I think, which is interesting as yeah. well. Um, so yeah, I guess he's just like, I don't care who it is. I'll just put them in whatever role I want for them basically. And it goes both ways. So at least he's consistent in that yeah. way. It's not it just like the only white thing actors in the movie. and brown face. Yeah. It's the only thing in the movie that is quite jarring. It's the only thing in any of the three movies that we talk about that are like that. Yeah, for it's sure. And little- it is, it's so just odd. weird seeing as well, like Alexander seeing. I mean, him for sure, because again, they give him this the nose, which is yeah, very yeah. over the top. He's um, also just this very over the top character. He is, but I think it works. Like I like his performance. I think it's fine. Sure, um, I agree. I don't think it's but... disrespectful in any way. But no, I think the movie as a whole is very respectful to Arabic culture and Arabic history. Right, for sure. But then there's also the other question where, in hindsight. People are saying, oh, it's a white savior movie, which mm. I think, sure, can be the case. But I, I think, think it's can make a lot more complex than that for... because the man, like, just completely collapses internally through this entire process. Yeah. He also doesn't succeed. Um, so did he really save it? Which I guess, again, I don't know. Is it better for the white savior to actually have saved or I would not? Also... also, it's history. So there's at yeah. least parts of it are accurate to, like, what he was doing. Like, he was trying to come in and unite these tribes to take on mm-hmm. the turks there's obviously historical liberties that are taken um but yeah it's also like can it be called a white savior movie when it's based on some actual truth i don't know about that i would also make the argument that a white savior movie for me is one where like the white man is introduced into this other culture to introduce like white uh like white ideas to save them and to promote like the white way of life as a way of how they do things kind of like what's that Ben Affleck movie you just did where he's like a basketball coach? <laughs> like the, you, the inner saying, city you haven't seen it, and it's fine. It's a good movie. Is it really? Way back, yeah, I watched it. It was okay. the last movie I saw before the pandemic hit because I was like, we're about to get taken down. So let me go watch a random movie, and I watched The Way Back, and it's okay. Like a lot of it, all right, all right. it's just a casual movie it. of like oh, imparting just basic general good ideas of like guys, we can pull together and work as a team and count on each other. It's that right, sort of well, thing. It's not like what's him a, saying. What's a good example of a white savior film? Like, uh, um, well, so the aspects help is of one that the help, yeah. a lot. Yeah, 
aspects of uh, what's it called the uh, the space movie with the black oh, yeah, and NASA. Yeah. Aspects of that. I don't remember what it's called. I know, I know we quick. watched it in math class. <laughs> hidden <laughs> figures. Math in it. Hidden figures, yeah. Aspects of hidden figures is definitely white savior. But I would say that like in Lawrence of Arabia, Lawrence is there and he becomes engrossed in like the Arabic culture and then is determined to let Arabs rule as Arabs rather than as aspects of the British Empire. Right. That I think is also another like critical aspect. He's mm-hmm. like trying to be like, yeah, I, like I am also working to get these group of people together so that the British don't come in and take over. Like he's actively working mm-hmm. against the interests of his quote own people in order mm-hmm. to um, try and allow them to mm-hmm. live and thrive in their own region and have their yeah. own, um, you know, autonomy. So again, I think that yeah. that's true. But then there's also, which I mean, I think people always, always try to find something to criticize. Um, but yeah, they could say, oh, well, he's, culturally appropriating by trying to mesh himself in the um in the Arabic culture mm-hmm. and he'll never actually be that but he's just like trying to pick up certain signifiers like the road that's like part of the movie is like his but identity yes yeah. he yeah. starts that's like the point. losing himself in a way and then he truly starts believing that he is like Arabic and obviously it bites him in the butt because he's not entirely like there's elements to it that he'll never be able to through his own sheer force of will and through his mind be able to conquer the reality of like he is not of yeah. that culture and not of that region and you know clearly still a white man so he's not able to fully um like transition into that sort of culture and lifestyle mm-hmm. and that, yeah, that becomes a big the, problem where he gets yeah the gets illusion closer. is shattered and he's like oh snap i maybe i can't do this maybe i'm not able to mind over matter everything so yeah, yeah i think it's such a complex um character study and the treatment of the this what couldn't be like a sensitive um, subject i think it's extremely well done for its time again outside of the round face casting um i think it is like actually handled really well and so mm. yeah i would hope that yeah it doesn't have as part of its legacy people are like oh it's just a white saver narrative again that feels yeah. um very reductive and inaccurate for this particular yep. story okay so digression over let's go back to that execution just outside of akaba so well before that Oh, about you're right. The, you want to talk about his tent. Yeah, yeah, just because the dialogue in there, so sharp, so stimulating, so intelligent. It's a great like The way that he's able to, can, oh, for sure. Um, this goes back to, there. yeah, that goes back to populating the frame. He could have just had it on them, like close up the tent so we don't need all those extras in the background. But he decided to have it because it gives depth to the frame and then also utilizes it for the scene itself when Alda appeals to like all those people in the background to support him. Um, so yeah, it's just great staging, great use of the frame and the depth of the image. And also the dialogue, it's just so good. The way that Lawrence is able to convince um, Alda to join him in attacking Akaba by appealing to what he is actually interested in and the sort of impression that he wants to create as a leader. Because initially he's like, oh, um, we're not doing this for the British. We're not doing this for Faisal. We're doing this for the Arabs. And now does like the Arabs, who are they? I know of this tribe and this tribe and that tribe, but the Arabs, they, just, they don't exist. Um, and so that doesn't work. And then he tries to get him by questioning his like leadership or um, his actual status. He's like, oh, well, you're just a servant for the Turks. And then so that does sort of annoy him, but he's able to spin it around and be like, 
oh, am I a servant? Am I a servant? And he shows like, oh, I'm a river to my people. I'm able to give them all this, like this life, this, um, all the food, all this happiness. So no, you can't call me a servant when I'm providing for my people in this way. Um, but then finally, like in the greed, the desire for the money that he um, is after, he's able to point out, oh, well, there is a lot of money in Aqaba. And there's so much more that the British has that they're not giving you. So why don't we go after that? But he doesn't make it solely on that appeal of like, oh, you're just going to be a greedy guy and go after the money. He frames it as, oh, no, you're you're going to Aqaba, not on behalf of the Arabs or on behalf of Faisal, not on behalf of greed for money. It's because it's what you desire. It's at your pleasure as a strong leader who makes great decisions for his people that are beneficial to his people. It's just so good how they're able to construct that in like a three minute scene. But we mm -hmm. go through, um, we hit so many different points, goes through so many different levels to arrive at Lawrence getting what he wants. But then Alda also being able to come away with it, being like he got what he wanted as well. So that stuff is just all great. And then we go to Aqaba and we're outside of it. It's nighttime and then things go wrong. There's conflict between the tribes. One man has killed another. And Lawrence has to resolve it so that they don't all leave before they actually capture Akaba. And then it turns out that Kasim is <laughs> the man that killed the other one, which is such a good like story device to have Kasim, mm -hmm. the man he risked his life to go save. And is also the reason that like he's able to be accepted into the, the tribe um, as much as he has been. That is the guy that killed the other one. Mm -hmm. And so Lawrence is faced with a choice of he has to like this man has to be executed. And Lawrence is going to do it himself. And oh, it is just so devastating. Devastating. Yeah, to see this man that he saved, he risked his life, went out and saved him. And now he has to shoot him down. Crazy. And then he does shoot him. And whether it was bad aim or uh, I don't know, him just him enjoying the pull of the trigger, he unloads like the whole chamber into Gassim, mm -hmm. finally kills him. But then, yeah, he's distraught afterwards. He tosses the gun into the sand and he's disgusted with it. Um, but then we see the taking of Akaba after that. Um, so the guns were, in fact, pointed to the sea. So it was a pretty easy um, thing to do with them just charging in there. And this is also another great sign of oh, yeah. why like, the scale and scope of this epic mm -hmm. fully works. Because you know that's a real city with real people a hundred or so extras on like camelback rushing mm -hmm. into that city as we're panning across left yeah. to right. See it happen. And it's just amazing. It's tangible. Cause like, you, and it's real and it feels that way. And it, it matches that epic sensibility that he's going for. Mm -hmm. It's just so good. Like you, you watch that and you're like, this is epic. And you compare that to Lord of the Rings when they're charging on the fields of there's the Rohirrim riders and they're charging in the fields of Pel Pelennor fields. Also mm -hmm. epic. And then you compare that to something more recent like Avengers Endgame where they're all charging at each other. It's cool. It's still grand. But I wouldn't say it's as epic, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. I would say when they're they're like lining up and he builds to that cool line, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's pretty mm -hmm. epic. They're yeah. all like coming through the portals. But you're right. The, the actual like run up and even as like the music is swelling in that. Um, and then when they actually clash. It definitely mm -hmm. doesn't carry the same sense to it because we know it doesn't have the so much of what we're watching is just digital CGI. 
instead yeah. of something truly real. And again, the like, no wonder this man had to be like somewhat authoritarian on set because could you imagine wrangling in all those extras, getting everyone prepped and ready for camels. that particular spot? Yeah, all those camels as well. And then imagine if you need to <laughs> do a second take. That was another thing I'd read was so much of the production time was them clearing off the camel tracks so they could go for a second take. Oh my and that God. Is so brutal to have to go through all of that. So yeah, that's why he had to be very precise in all of his staging and all the blocking and everything so that they wouldn't have to do um, multiple takes. Cause yeah, you're not going to be able to pull a venture on something like Lawrence of Arabia and do dozens and dozens and dozens of takes. Yeah. That'd be crazy. Mm -hmm. But yeah, also think, well worth the effort. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It like absolutely paid off. Um, mm -hmm. The, after that, we have a little later on the death of Daoud on the <sighs> way to Cairo. And this is so sad because I was like, another that element that I was surprised by was, yeah, these two um, younger characters are like orphans or they're outcasts in their tribe and they're like latching on to Lawrence. And then he reluctantly is like, okay. Sure, they can be like my servants. We'll help them out. And I was like, this is a great dynamic because they're, they're like comedic relief, but um, you're warmed up to them so much because they're like sort of the outcasts of the tribe and they're so earnest and um, like always trying to jump in and do things. And I was like, great. Like, I love this dynamic. I, I love to see how it plays out. And then Daoud dies, but he gets taken by the quicksand. I did not expect that at all. I thought for sure Lawrence was going to be able to save him because again, at that point, like, yeah, the audience is buying into... Um, Lawrence's grand machinations, how he's able to pull everything off. Like he got Akaba, like you said, he got the tribes together, like you said. He was able to get Gassim, like he said. So we're like, okay, yeah, Lawrence can do this. But then he couldn't, he failed. Daoud died. Oh, awful. And then we see, it is awful. I like as well, as we truly sit with the grief that Lawrence has for the rest of the return trip, my man is just distraught, just like the vacant expression on his face. And then when he gets to Cairo and he goes into the officer's bar, like his white robes are all dirtied at this point. And he brings um, Faraj, I think his name is the other kid, into the bar with them, even though that's against the rules. And he's like trying to get them lemonade um, while all the officers are sneering at them and being like, get out of here. You can't be here. And Lawrence just does not care at that point. Um, just trying to get a solid drink after everything he's been through. So that stuff was great. And then this moment in the film, truly, like this was where I was like, oh, okay, five stars. Cause it is something I didn't expect at all and impressed me so much. Like his confession, when he's sitting there with that um, one officer and he's talking about like all the deaths that occurred in the, um, you know, in, with Agaba and his trip. And then he starts talking about first Daoud's death, which he blames on himself, even though it wasn't like actually his fault. But he's like, yeah, I killed that guy. And then I also killed another person. And he's talking about, yeah, it was an awful experience that horrified me. And the officer's like, oh, well, yeah, we can understand. Sorry about that. And he's like, no, there's something else to it. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed the killing. And the acting in that particular scene, like Peter oh, O'Toole's yeah. face, it was amazing. Like, in Top terms tier. of, like, the very minute details of a performance, like, it's one of the best that I can bring to mind because it's just, oh, it was crushing. Because, yeah, you 
we already know, like the earlier characterization, is hardline stance against murder. He's like this, I mean, like flamboyant type of guy, like happy-go-lucky, pretty warm and kind. And then he's also, again, so determined, so well put together because he's able to come up with these plans and execute them. And you see like this incredible vulnerable moment where he's realizing like the worst side of who he is and bringing that out loud for the first time. Oh, it was just amazing. Like executed so well. Peter O'Toole got robbed, bro. Peter O'Toole got robbed at the Oscars. That's shocking to me that he wasn't able to get the Oscar for that because it was like just on that screen for three and a half hours, bro, killing it every single time. He's asked to do so much throughout the film, like the different um, like twists and turns that his character takes, the different mindsets, Mm -hmm. um, all the different places he's at mentally. Like he did so well, and in this scene in particular, I was just again stunned absolutely flabbergasted at the performance here. So, yeah, that was great. Mm-hmm. Then, then we get to the intermission. Yep, and so we're going to take a 10-minute pause now to honor that 10-minute intermission. <laughs> we're going to bring in the overture, let it play again. Yep. Anyway, after the intermission, we get introduced to a new character. I don't remember the character's name. I don't think I know the actor's name either, but he was pretty good in the movie. He Definitely, it's more. It's definitely like a, a static role, but you know, I mean, it's very played very well. He's the American in the movie because there always needs to be an American. Yeah, there's one in there. He's the American reporter comes in, and uh, he's writing a story about Lawrence. And his first scene is with Alec Guinness as Prince Faisal. We finally get his return after not seeing him for like an hour and a half or two hours or something. And they just talk about uh what the Arab plans are and talk about Lawrence and. They, it sort of acts as like a pretty good segue into a time jump where we're learning about what Lawrence has been doing through direct exposition. But then there's also the subtext of like how Prince Faisal thinks about Lawrence leading his men, quote unquote, leading his men and all that stuff. And then we transition into them robbing a train, which is awesome. You love the it's train. so heist. cool. It's so cool. They, they knock the train on its side. They blow it up. It's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, that is super cool. Um, but and then, that's probably my favorite scene in the movie, actually, is when they rob that train. Because I just think it's not? so great. That's Gosh. the one that's stuck in my mind so much. That and the well is just awesome. I mean, they're robbing a train. There's nothing cooler in a movie than when people rob a train. I'm telling you. Yeah, no arguments against that here. Um, but yeah, great stuff. And then in this half, like after the intermission, yeah, we're seeing Lawrence fully believing his own myth, which of course is now getting uh, bolstered by the reporter coming in. And he's particularly like he's on the hunt for a story like Lawrence's so that he can um, blow it up and show to the masses at home that, oh, see, there's this adventurous side to the war. It's going to be like fun and games in a certain way. Um, So, yeah, trying to present that um idea of the war so that people will be more sympathetic to it and will get involved and so now the reporter's coming in taking these photographs of lawrence um who is still donning those white robes and is having all these successes and still has all his men with him um and so yeah he's buying into his own mythos of being this great untouchable leader that's able to mind over matter his way through everything 
Um, and so, yeah, he's got that, like the silhouette of him, like stretching his arms out at Messianic. Oh, image. so cool. Yeah, it's a great shot. Um, but again, great insight into this character and how he's perceiving himself now. Um, there's that moment where that like one dude was trying to shoot him and Lawrence is like not even ducking or anything. He gets like shot in the shoulder, but he's still just chilling. Um, so he feels like he's, he's, um, durable. He's invulnerable. He can't get killed. So yeah, he's truly buying into the illusion that yeah, Lawrence is of Arabia, but he's also, uh, like of a higher level, like almost divine in a way. Um, and then, we see his fall, his disillusionment with um, that well, first and that self perception. First, they rob they rob a second train. You always got to bring with, in the train with horses. They, this train has horses on. <laughs> I think it's a great bit that Auda is only there when he feels like he needs to be for his own personal gain, as with a lot of the other Arabs that are there. And then when they get something, they all leave, and so slowly his army is dwindling because mm-hmm. they're all leaving for the time being because they've gotten the riches they've wanted. And it's because he's not leading with that British sense of uh, that thing we see in the bridge on the river choir, which is that British sense of loyalty to uh, right. to your leadership. He's not trying to lead with that because he, he's like, they will come back. And he has that sort of just overconfidence in this idea of like, they will come back. They know what this is really about. And it's just sort of very uh, narcissistic of him to have that impression. But also they rob like two trains and it's awesome. And then Farage dies. Yeah, he kills so sad. Farage, which he has another sad bit, which I didn't expect that to come that early. But yeah, he ends up having to kill him because he got injured. Um, and so they don't want mm-hmm. him to get questioned or anything. So yeah, they go ahead well, and kill him. they don't want him to get tortured by the Turks, which True. is something that they they weave in a lot of like, we need to kill the men. Like in the second half, because like they have that in the bit with Prince Faisal where he says, you know, we don't leave people to be taken prisoners because the Turks don't treat us as prisoners of war because we aren't soldiers of a nation in their eyes they don't have to follow the geneva codes which is the second time in one of these movies the geneva codes has come up very interesting and then mm-hmm. uh we had that bit here where like we can't leave farage because he will be tortured by the turks horribly so they're like building up that idea of like the turks the turks torture people <laughs> <laughs> the torturous torks yeah <laughs> fuck off <laughs> um but yeah so then we see lawrence's disillusionment again his full height of yeah, the narcissism, the self-aggrandizement, the grandeur where he's like, yeah, I'm going to go into this Turkish stronghold, this city. I'm going to pass as an Arab. And I'm going to, I don't even, I forget exactly what his motivation was, like what he was hoping to gain from the conversation. Yeah, I don't get it either. That's not something that, this is my biggest problem with this scene. It's probably the scene I have the biggest problem with in the movie because I don't understand why he went into the city and I don't understand what he was going to get out of it. I, I understand why it's needed and I understand it's very, very important to the story, but I feel like the buildup could have been better because I just don't get why he walks in in the first place. Right. I agree. There may be one there. I just don't remember it. So it could be the case that there is like a strong reason for why, because him and I think Sheriff Ali, like they talk about it beforehand. Um, but yeah, I just forget exactly what the reason was, but he goes in, he's captured by the Turks and then he's being examined by them. Um, and then clearly like, he's not an Arab. And then they end up whipping him. And then after that, like for hours, apparently that was going on because then he's tossed out at night and then Sheriff Ali has to come greet him. And then he's completely disillusioned at that point. 
he realizes in a way that like, oh, some things are written and can't be changed no matter how much I will it. Like some things are just the way that they are. They're destined to be that way. Um, and no amount of me minding it will be able to change it. So he's very saddened by that disillusioned. He's like, I am done here. I am leaving the desert. I'm returning to Cairo. And then we see him in the military uniform again and he's, you know, back in that mix. But he ultimately has to get sent back to the desert not too long after that because the English are trying to take Damascus. They're trying to kiss up to Lawrence be like, oh, you're so great. You're amazing. Like, we need you for this. And Lawrence, of course, knows that their ultimate goal is to just take over Arabia. Um, and so he wants to still prevent that to a certain extent. Um, but then a great part of that scene, I think, was when he was like fighting back against them, like arguing, and then his wounds start bleeding. Like, see, on the back of his shirt, the blood is coming through. Um, and so, again, showing the impact of that whipping and what it caused to him, showing that like he is human, he is mortal. Like, when he's going back there, he's going to have at least somewhat of a sense of, an understanding of okay, I'm not, I'm not this divine god figure that will be able to make everything happen. So he'll need to be a little bit more careful. And then when he does return, we see that he does that because now he's surrounding himself with mercenaries and bodyguards, people that are known murderers, as Sheriff Ali points out. And so again, we see that big change from the beginning where he's not going to associate with murders at all, and now he's surrounding himself with these people because he knows he's in, invulnerable. He is mortal, and so he's doing what needs to be done. So it's a big mm -hmm. change in that character. So I love that. And yeah. then they go, and they're on their way to go take Damascus, and then they get sidelined by Arabs, butchered by the Turks. Mm -hmm. And one of the Arabs charges on to fight the Turks because it was his village, and he gets slaughtered immediately, of course. And obviously what they should do is continue onward to Damascus, to take it for the Arabs and to leave the Turks alone. But Lawrence is overwhelmed by this, this like this like sense of like, you know, the power of the Turks over the Arabs and the sense of like wrongfulness to it. And like the, the trauma he's experienced under the hands of the Turks directly. And he just gives into this full barbarous sense of himself that 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 sense of like loving that murder towards Gassim, that's sort of cruelty that's deep inside of him. And he goes full charge at the Turks and they leave no prisoners and they massacre them all. And it's horrific. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and we see Lawrence like pulling out a similar guns when he's on Gassim and shooting down people and getting caught up in the feverish bloodshed. Um, and then at the end of it, he pulls out his knife and looks at his reflection in it which is a callback to when he first got his robes, he was off on his own and then he pulls out the knife and is looking at himself and enjoying um, like how he looks in it. And then here he's looking at himself and he's covered in blood. He's all dirty. He's unrecognizable, which is so good. Mm -hmm. Brilliant character choice. Great way to showcase again, that change that is happening to Lawrence. And then after that, they are able to go to Damascus and take it. Um, but the Arabs aren't able to work together to like run the city. Um, and then the British come through and then they take over. And so Lawrence, despite ultimately getting to Damascus first, isn't able to prevent the British from taking over Damascus and taking over the rest of a big portion of the Middle East. 
So he fails in essence, but then of course he's getting promoted and he's getting sent home. It's like, oh, that's great. Like this is your reward. But obviously he doesn't feel like he's due any reward since he failed in every sense imaginable because he didn't get there to be together and be their own people. And he's also realized um, the deepest, darkest sides of himself and has to now carry that with him. Um, and so we see in the end when he's being driven back home, uh, he's through the desert. He's passing that motorcyclist. The one guy is like, oh, we're going back home. And he's like, home? Because he doesn't recognize anymore. And then he's covered in the cloud left by the motorcyclist, which is shrouding our view of him, which again is just a brilliant choice to showcase. Again, we aren't able to get this full picture of who this man is because he's he's lost. He's pulled between his like original home of British, but now he's sort of forsaken that. And then his new home with um, the desert. But again, he became a horrible version of himself there and wasn't able to like fully accomplish everything that he was hoping for there. And now he's being sent away from it. But the desert is always sort of going to be with him in a sense. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, seeing him, his image be shrouded by that cloud of dust from the motorcyclist, which also goes back to like his eventual death on a motorcycle. Like it's just such a brilliant way to cap everything off. So mm -hmm. good. So yeah. good. Absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. So any final thoughts? Yes. The score, which again, I mean, apparently you wanted to give it a spotlight with the eight minute overture, but oh, it yeah. is an incredible score. Oh yeah. It's fantastic. So I understand the, uh, you know, the desire to want to do that. Um, the one other question I want to bring up was the idea of T.E. Lawrence possibly being gay. And there have been readings of the film that include that. Did you come up with that at all when you watched it? I, I had an odd feeling of that with his, like, interaction with Farage when he brings him into the officer suite and then, like, when they're, like, running off together a lot and then when he has to kill him. I was like, maybe he was also using Farage as a lover. Maybe they were lovers together. I don't know. But not 100%. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's definitely not, like, explicit or anything. Right. And if it is implicit, it's very subtly implicit. Yeah. Well, at the time it was made, it certainly couldn't be explicit. But, yeah, they were saying oh, there were um, some implicit hints at that because apparently T. Lawrence in real life was also suspected of potentially being homosexual. But, yeah, for me, at least in the movie, I did not pick up on that at all other than maybe – I don't know, there's a weird um, lingering of, like, the Turk who was mm -hmm. examining him when he was shirtless. Um, yeah. So I was like, maybe there's something about it there. But, yeah, overall, I did not get that sense. Um, yeah, it was yeah, definitely was a stretch. I was reading through, like, letterbox and seeing things that were like, oh, they're so gay. Or, oh, this is so gay. And I was like, I did not pick up on that at all. So maybe I was missing something. But, yeah, it, it does add another layer to it of that could be another sense of yeah dimension to this character of him being that and having repressed that side of him and maybe there was something like with um his companions like Faraj or Daoud um that sort of thing and when I was reading up on it people were also saying there's there could be this level of um like masochism with it where like a lot of what he does in a desert is sort of self-punishment for like, you know, him being that way and trying to repress that side of him in a sense. Um, and I don't know if I entirely buy it as being it, but of course, like he does do the thing like with the 
match, like always trying to test himself or hurt himself in a certain way um, to prove that he is able to have mind over matter. But yeah, maybe that could be a, like inflicting pain on himself or some sort of masochistic reason as well. So yeah, I think it's interesting that there's a lot of implicit readings that could come with this as well. And I think it just shows the complexity of Lawrence as a character um, and how interesting and successful this film is as a character study, since there's so much you can take away from it um, in many different versions of Lawrence that you can interpret. So, yeah, I think that's fantastic. I agree. But yeah, uh, how many camelback treks through the desert out of five? What is that, full five? I'm going to say a full five as well. Also, before we move on, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the great transition from blowing out the match to the sunrise. So good. Just the best. Can't get any better. Fantastic. You love to see it. <laughs> Here's how. Um, so yeah, full five from each of us. Lawrence of Arabia, absolute classic. 60th anniversary. Hopefully, they bring it in theaters. Hopefully, IMAX. And we that can would be a go very nice day night. Yeah. If they, I'm hoping someone is working on like a restoration or an update of that because, oh, it would be so good. Fantastic. Yeah. What a way to spend four hours, right? Yep. And now to cap it all off, the last of the three films we're going to talk about, Dr. Zhivago. I had not seen it prior. This is the only one I hadn't seen prior to our watching. Had you seen it before? Absolutely not. So I didn't even really know what it was going to be. I knew it was going to be like a love story during the Russian Revolution. And that's it. That's all I knew. Right off the bat, I think the opening scene is awesome. When you have that really epic like cave cavern that there are, all the workers are coming out of. And you have Alec Guinness and he's interviewing the one girl. I'm like, this is great. This is awesome. The rest of the movie is okay. <laughs> my, my first, it, it's uh, Robert... Bolt has adapted the novel from Boris Pasternak and is starring Omar Sharif and Julie Christie and Alec Guinness and uh, what's her name? Charlie Chaplin's daughter. Don't yes. know. And it was it is another <laughs> collaboration with Freddie Young. He was the director of photography on this as well. And it made a bunch of money. It made $110 million at the box office. And at the time, that's a fortune. That's a lot, sure. a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And so it made a but ton of the box office. But of course, it was not critically renowned like Return of Kwai and Lawrence Arabia had been. And of course, this was one of the movies that, you know, discouraged uh, David Lean from making more movies for a while. He didn't make another movie for five or so years until he made Ryan's Daughter. And it was very impactful. Like the the comments really hurt him that, that he, was cri he was criticized so much. I do have my own critiques of it. It's not my favorite for sure. There are elements that I don't like. As far as romances go, it's not very romantic. Like, it, it has the potential. That, that's what's frustrating. Is it's not like they just completely ignore the romance. There is a lot of potential for a romantic story in here. And it feels like they skirt by it to focus more on the Russian Revolution, which I think is a mistake. I feel like if they had focused more on the romance between uh, Zhivago and, uh, God, what's her name? Uh, Laura? Laura. Is it Laura? Laura. 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 I should know this. This is bad. Look it up real quick. I feel yeah. like it's Laura or Lara. I think Laura like the Russian version right. is Laura. Or is that the... No. Who is it? Because maybe Laura's Laura is the... Okay, cool. 
Because I was like, and who's Geraldine the Chaplin, by the way. Geraldine, Geraldine Chaplin, Chaplin plays Tanya. Tanya! <laughs> That's my favorite thing he says. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he, the love story with Laura, like, there's literally like an extended bit where they're working in a hospital together for six months and they never show it. Agreed. So, and I was like, well, "This is a, a three hour, three three hours and like seventeen minute movie about a love story between him and Lara, and you have their introduction in this hospital. Like, you've done all this work to build up them as individuals, and then you're putting them together in this hospital to build their love connection, and then you don't show any of it. That yeah. is a missed opportunity. And then you spend so long on that train after they're all after they run away from Moscow. You spend like literally." 10 minutes before the intermission and then like another 10 minutes after the intermission on this train seems like also like a mistake. Like you're spending too much time focusing on the Russian revolution. It feels like to me, you could have either cut out half an hour of the Russian revolution, or you could have swapped half an hour of focusing on the Russian revolution and put more emphasis on that love story. Cause, and that would have made it more personal and more impactful. And I think it would have been better. And I think that's the biggest misstep of Dr. Zhivago is not being romantic enough. Agreed, because I did not care for the romance at all. Yeah. I didn't understand why they were going, like, pining so hard for each other and mm-hmm. trying so hard to be together. I wasn't that invested in whether or not they did end up together. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Zhivago being with his actual wife, and they had, yeah. like, kids, and they had just had another kid as he's going off with Lara in the cabin. Mm-hmm. So I was like, why... Like we should be, we're supposed to be rooting for them to be together instead of him like being with his kids. It's like, I don't know, a little strange. I think Um, the first hour is great when they build up their characters as their own people. mm -hmm. I think it's great. I think it's a little long, but I think it really, really works because it's, it's showing what the precursor is to that revolution. It shows like what it's life in Moscow was like pre Russian revolution. And it's having like, a very profound effect on my impression of who Zhivago is and on who Lara is specifically as individuals. And I really like that. And then they go to war and in war they meet together. And I think what should have happened, of course, is everything happens as it does. And then they end up in the hospital. And then you could probably do 20 or 30 minutes where they slowly fall in love with each other in the hospital while the Russian revolution is building up in Moscow while Tanya is still there. And then he returns to Moscow. And of course they get chased out. And so, then you do like maybe five minutes on the train. I'm really mad that they spent so long on that train. <laughs> he likes when we rob trains, but he doesn't like when we spend time on trains. They didn't rob any trains in this movie. It's a mistake. A missed but opportunity for sure. <laughs> they spent so long on this train. And it just felt like they were trying to emphasize the effects of the Russian Revolution when I get it. Like I get it immediately. Like I'm like, they're getting their their house has been destroyed, all their personal belongings are gone, and they're being forced out of their home. I get it immediately. Obviously, like all the imagery they have of them, like huddled at the train station and then cramped into this train. I get it. You don't need to spend so long on this. Right. And then they finally get to the village. And this is supposed, if you had done that work with Lara and Zhivago in the hospital, him leaving his family to go visit her in the nearby village a lot would make a lot more sense. And it would be a lot more compelling because we would have had that love connection there. Mm-hmm, very true yeah i think it's it's for the length that it has which i think is way too long like this is one where you feel the length and it's kind of grueling for sure it's odd that as you said there's so much missed opportunity and things that should have been included that weren't 
So it's like, what were you spending so much time on? Mm -hmm. This is such a long film, but it feels incomplete. Um, And then, yeah, I think they were torn between either making it just the love story and honing on that or making it just a film about the Bolshevik revolution. Because I also feel like we didn't get as much depth as we could have about that in particular, like all Mm -hmm. the machinations going with it. Because he's also supposed to be this poet and his poetry is going to put him at risk as well because apparently he's... And they don't expand on that that much. Yeah, they don't expand on that. Um, But like, yeah, I'm interested in that sort of thing of this idealist who's going to be vocal about uh, some political changes going on in his country. Like that is stuff that's interesting to me, but we don't focus in on that at all, really. Um, I would like to read the novel to see what it does. I would like because I'm assuming the novel it goes into more detail in a in a more romantic way because I've right. heard that the novel is incredibly romantic. Mm. Like it's a straight up like they are in love with like he's in love with Lara. It just to me it felt like he likes Lara and he like is interested in Lara, but he really loves Tanya and like he's really in love with his wife. So it just feels like a dude cheating on a wife that he really loves. As opposed okay. to like a man who's torn between two loves, which is what it should have been. Right, agree. And yeah, again, in both mm-hmm. loves, I just wasn't feeling it that much. There were parts to it, like I do like Laura, um, like when she was on her own in the beginning of the film, and she's dealing with that one guy. I forget his name, but it builds up to her shooting him in the mm-hmm. middle of the party. I was down for that. I was like, maybe you should have taken another shot if you're gonna go. Yeah, far, right. like just take him out, go for the head, like just end it. Um, that part was interesting to me, and I did like the Pasha Strenlikov stuff, yeah, because um, that again, that was touching on like the Bolshevik stuff and like the idealism and people's points of view in the war. Um, so I did like the few scenes that he had, but yeah, ultimately it just he was good. Very long. He was, he was, yeah, it was very long, and I was, I hate to say it, but kind of bored with a lot of it. Yeah, I was too. To say. I, I found myself, in the other movie that didn't do this, but I found myself checking how much longer there was left in the movie a lot. I, I was like, I was, I was like, God, there's another hour. I was like, oh my God. I was like, oh my God. There's a lot. Yeah. I, I just, agree. yeah, I wish it was more compact. I wish they had focused more on a lot of more important stuff because the imagery is very romantic. Mm-hmm. The imagery of the icy cabin, so of like fields in Russia, of the ho- of the hospital they're in with all the flowers around them, like visually, it is shot maybe some of the best I've seen out of all three of these movies. Like it's gorgeous, it's very very romantic. The sets are designed incredibly well. Oh, like yes. from a production standpoint, it is superb, flawless, incredible. I will say though. My one of my favorite parts of the movie is probably the end, where we're back at with Alec Guinness and he's retelling the story, and then we see her walking away and she has the instrument. I do like that. I agree. That was nice. It didn't because it's like make... that whole idea of like we don't know if she has it or like we don't know if she is his son, but then you see it and you're like, oh, I guess she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I did like, like a little that. nod. But then they had then they had like the narration afterwards and they talked about Laura's. The rest of her life, it was like kind of bad, and I was like, "Why did no?" They... they oh, maybe was that before or after that? I don't know, but it, I think it was just... before that because the very last thing is she walks away with the the thing, and then he like calls her and he's like, "Can you play?" And then her boyfriend's like, "She's the best." Gotcha. Okay, then she that's learned a all on her own. Sweeter note to end it on, but yeah, yeah, I do remember 
when they were mentioning out of like Laura's the rest of her life. It's a and weird like, end for Laura because Laura goes and she's like everyone. she's like close with Alec Guinness and like she's looking for her daughter and she can't find her and Alec Guinness is like, well, I guess I was in love with her a little too and then she left and then died in a prison camp or something. And I, I was know, like, Jesus yeah. Christ! I was like, that's so awful. It's like such how a unnecessary! Like everyone. she's walking away and she's fine and like how does she end up in a prison camp? Like why does she die there? What? Yeah, it was. <laughs> like out of left field and again for like a romantic movie to have them both yeah i do like how dr Zhivago dies though where he thinks he sees laura and he tries to chase her but he has a heart attack yeah i thought that was good too um, i think one of my least favorite parts is when he like leaves tanya to go see laura again and he's like i'll be back i promise and then he gets kidnapped by the russians and is forced to like be their doctor for months and just like never comes back that just lasts for so long it's like another 20 minutes of him just being out in the russian war and I'm like, you're right. just showing so much war when it's not supposed to be a, like about the war. It's supposed to be about the love that's happening during the war. Ah, oh, it was just so much. <laughs> For sure. All right. So I'll let you go ahead and do this since you love. Yeah. Tonya. yeah. How many, how many, uh, Tonya, how many Tonyas out of five? So it's going to seem harsh, but again, it's just because. <laughs> I was not very interested at all in anything that was going on. I'm giving it a two. God damn. That is harsh. It was just not interesting. I just don't. You're one of the people that drove David Lean to retiring early. <laughs> no, that was for Ryan's daughter. Okay. Dr. Zhivago, he was riding that. high on all that box office money. He knew he made a hit, but. No, he was still what they saw in 1965. Uh, I'm going to say. I'm going to say three and a half. Gotcha. I still think visually it's very great. I think it ha does have it's like as much as I've been commenting on how, what I didn't like, there are a lot of stuff I do like. Like it was a pleasure to watch. I just no. I feel like if somebody recut it, if somebody got the footage and recut the movie to be like two and a half hours and like cut out a lot of the war stuff and just focus more on Lara, I think it would have been a lot better. And I think it would have been probably like a four or four and a half. But there were a lot that I liked. There were a lot of, like the first hour again, I think is done really, really well. So from story wise, setup wise, I think it's long, but I think it works. And if the rest of the movie had continued that trend and been three hours, like they did another hour on them in the hospital and then another hour in the aftermath of the revolution, I think I would have been sold. But it just gets worse and worse as it goes down. <laughs> and I'm like, it's just getting more and more boring and it's getting more and more just dark without any sort of glimmer of hope and sad. And I feel bad for Omar Sharif and I, I feel bad for for Julie Christie and all of them. And it's just like, yeah, this just sucks. It's just a downer. It's just a complete downer. There's no love. It just sucks. Yeah. So yeah, you gave it I, I do want to read the book though. I wanna I wanna compare the book to the movie. So I do want to read the book one day. Gotcha. Yeah, I feel like I don't know, maybe I'd like the book a little more. It just felt I mean, so I'll let you know long and overwrought for the story that they were supposed to be telling. And again, even the first hour for me, I did feel like a lot of it was pretty extraneous and not much of it was that compelling. So I liked it because I was geared up for a romance and it felt like that's the direction they were going in that first hour. Like when he has that first thing where he's like looking when they're, when the mother tries to kill herself, which I don't really get. And then, cause I thought it was, I thought it was Lara at first and then it turns out it was her mother and I'm like, oh, okay. Right. But like that bit where he's like looking around in the dark room and then he sees her through like the glass and it's like the music plays. I think it was like very like 
the imagery is very romantic and like agree, what they're yeah. trying to go for. That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted throughout the whole thing. And then it just becomes <laughs> such a downer. And I'm like, this is not what I was sold on. I was sold on something very romantic and very like lovey and stuff. This is just so long and boring and intense. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I don't know, your 3.5 still seems pretty generous for how you're talking about it. I'll say it's three. It's pretty boring. Is, yeah. right. I'll say it's a three. Because that's one of the gravest sins, I feel like. And then you also pointed out, you're right. I think you spoke well about, like, yeah, a lot of the fundamental issues, which is that we don't see them falling in love for this love story, which is quite uh, baffling. As I choice. just don't get how you get to the writer. You're, you're a writer and you're writing it out and you get to that moment where like, oh, they're finally like you, you weave their stories kind of through each other without complete, like completely interacting with them. And then they're finally in this very intense moment at war and they finally meet one another. And then you write that they stay together for six months in a hospital, but then you don't show <laughs> any of it. I was flabbergasted. I was like, oh, okay. Because then I got through and I was like, oh, okay. So then they have to have another point where they run into each other and then they'll fall in love. But then like the next time they see each other, they're just in love. And I'm like, what? Right, yeah. When did this happen? They didn't even seem like they were in love when they left each other. They just seemed like they had feelings for each other and then left. Very true. I, I don't know, maybe that, yeah. people fell in love differently back then. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Because again, audiences ate it up. It was huge. I don't I know what so. they saw, but I'm glad that they, they saw were able to enjoy it. Omar Sharif being super charming with his big, big baby eyes. <laughs> his taped back eyes. Yeah. Uh, all right. So a five from both of us for Lawrence of Arabia, a five and a 4.5 for Bridge on the River Kwai, and then a two from me and a three from you for Dr. Zhivago. So definitely not our favorite of the epics, but still... We heavily endorse the Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia as fantastic, classic films, amazing epics from David Lean. And it'll Absolutely. be interesting to, I do want to check out both Ryan's Daughter and Passage to India. Oh, me too. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to check those out and see how mm -hmm. they fare. Because, um, yeah, it mm -hmm. seems like Ryan's Daughter is supposed to be more in line with Dr. Zhivago. So we'll see if the romance actually is built up well in that one. And then Passage to India definitely feels more like it's harkening back to Rukwai and Lawrence mm -hmm. of Arabia. So, yeah, yeah, it will be cool to see those. But there you go. Absolutely. That is our director analysis on yeah. David Lean. The epics of David Lean. That's all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show, you can email us at theboxofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. If you like the show, please give us five stars on whatever podcast app you're listening to. And be sure to tune in next week. Have a great rest of your day. The Oscars draft. We're bringing it back. We're bringing it back.